Well, good morning again. Good to see everybody. Grab a seat. So when you look around your house, or if you looked around my house, uh, it's possible that some of us would have some decorations around our house that might have different scripture verses quoted on them. And in fact, if you went to a store, if you looked online at some of the places that sell different you know, Christian art and things like that, you would find kind of a pattern with some of the more common uh, or more popular Bible verses that get referenced in uh, art or greeting cards or things of that nature. And they're things that tend to be a good synopsis of major areas of doctrine or portions of Scripture that bring great encouragement or help to us in times of need. Um, I recognize that as we've been going through the book of Jeremiah, a book that as I mentioned at the start of our series, uh, is not the type of book that usually gets preached. It usually gets skipped more than it gets preached because of its confrontational nature and just some of the awkward things that Jeremiah was led by the Lord to bring up to the people of Judah. But in the midst of the book of Jeremiah, there's one particular verse that actually gets quoted. So in the midst of all the confrontational things that the Lord says to the people of Judah in the midst of his uh, reminders to them of the things that were coming that were going to be difficult for them to face, there's one verse that tends to get quoted. And we're finally this week at the chapter that contains that verse. You probably, and, and we'll look at it in detail, I'll make mention of it now, Jeremiah 29.11 is in Jeremiah 29, obviously where we are today. And today, specifically, we're going to be talking about the plan of God and asking ourselves the question, do I actually understand God's plan? Because there's some interesting things here in the context of the verses that come before verse 11 and the verses that come after verse 11 that I think provide helpful context for the content of verse 11. And so if you would take your Bibles and and open up with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. So today we're going to be in verse 10, and we're going to be looking all the way down to verse 23. So we'll start at verse 10, and, uh, and we'll pause at verse 23. But we're going to be talking today just about this idea of the nature of God's plan and whether or not we actually understand what His plan happens to be. So Jeremiah 29, starting with verse 10, this is what it states. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the, to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence. By the way, no one has verse 17 decorating their house, do they? No one has that one? All right, we st- just 11? All right. But it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, And I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But you would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles, whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Koliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, 
and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege to be able to look at this portion of Scripture together today as we meditate on it, as we worship you, as we think about this idea of the fact that you actually do have a plan for us. Lord, we recognize that it can be so easy for us to mistakenly think that our lives are haphazard or mistakenly believe that your eyes might be on other people, but your eyes are certainly not on us. And then when we look at the content of your word, and we even see how you notice individual things that individual people do, we recognize, Lord, that that's your pattern, that as your children, we do not escape your sight. So, Lord, we're grateful for that fact. We're grateful that you have a plan for us that is something that far surpasses the type of things that we could even conjure up in our thinking. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at this portion of Scripture that includes at least one familiar verse to many of us, but also many unfamiliar verses, we pray, Lord, that you'd give us your wisdom and your insight and your understanding, and that by your grace that we would apply these things to our day-to-day lives. We just thank you for this all, Lord, and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, so this would be maybe about, if I had to guess, probably about 15 years ago, uh, our family was friends with another family. We're still friends with them. They live a, a few hours from us now. But we would get together with them from time to time. And one of the times that we were over in their house, in their kitchen, we noticed something that was very curious. Uh, most people, um, uh, you know, if, if you have a calendar, how many calendars do you typically have hanging up in your kitchen? Usually just one, right? Well, they had five. They had five calendars hanging up in their kitchen, and I, it would be easy to look at that and think, wow, this family really likes calendars. Then you looked at them, and some of them were the exact same calendar. So it's like, why would, it's not like you have like another calendar with all different pictures or, or something like that. It's like, oh, I just love the nature scenes, but I also love birds. So I like trees and I like birds, but I also like fire trucks. All right, I can't decide. So let's have, let's have all these things. And, uh, and, and so they had multiple calendars, and I remember talking to them about that, and they said they did this to keep track of the schedules of every person in their house. So you had mom and dad, so they each had their calendars. And then they had three daughters, and so each of their daughters had a calendar. Their daughters were all teenagers at that time and trying to keep track of the different sporting events that they were part of and and, uh, the different work schedules and other things that they had on their plate. It was a lot to keep track of, and I think I've mentioned this before, but at this point, my family does something similar, although we're not doing it necessarily by hanging up uh, a whole series of paper calendars. Uh, around our house, but we digitally sync our calendars because we've got at this point now my calendar and my wife's calendar, and then we've got four children, three of which uh, work now outside of the home, plus our kids are involved in different activities and and sometimes sports, and so uh, it's a lot to keep track of, and it's a lot to try and keep in sync. It's a little bit easier now that our phones talk to each other. Fifteen years ago, you had to pretty much rely on paper to do it, But there's church obligations, ministry obligations, all sorts of things we're trying to keep track of, and it's helpful to have a list. It's helpful to have a schedule. It's helpful to have something, at least from my perspective, I find it helpful to have something that I can actually look at because it helps me plan. And if I can plan, it helps me to actually get some things accomplished. It helps me to make the best use of my time, and you probably feel the exact same way in regard to your schedule or in regard to your calendar. Sometimes one of the first things I do when I walk here into the office each day, and uh, if you come at interesting times during the week, you'll notice my desk littered with checklists. Like sometimes I'll just look at a day and I'll feel overwhelmed by all the things I feel like I have to get done before I'm done that day or before I can say, all right, today's finished, and I find it actually helps my mind to be at rest if I say, all right, let's just put it in a list. 
Just make a list. You know, step number one, step number two, step number three, and there'll be like seven things on the list, and all throughout the day, cross something off. Do you ever write something on your list that you've already done just because you want the satisfaction of being able to cross? I do that sometimes too. I did that the other day. I'm like, why am I writing this on the list? I already did it. And it's like, no, you want to be able to look at this at the end of the day and say, look at the other thing you accomplished even before you wrote the list out, right? I think on my list for this coming week, first thing I should put on the list is write a list. I'd be like, did it, check. (laughs) But we make plans. And we try and think of things like that, and it's helpful to see some of those things visually. And again, you probably do the same sorts of things in, in, in your own way. We probably have some way that we approach this. And I bring this up because planning is not something that is unique to us. Planning is something that Scripture reveals to us. It's something that the Lord actively is doing. In fact, when you read through the Scriptures, particularly when you're reading through prophetic books like the book of Jeremiah, One of the things that you notice is that the Lord tells us about things before they happen. So if He's telling us about things before they happen, He must have a plan to get us to the spot where those things are going to start happening. He's in the process of unfolding all sorts of things that are part of His plan. But I think sometimes when we talk about God's plan, we talk about it in a very general way without asking do I actually understand the nature of God's plan? Do I understand the way in which parts of His plan are supposed to work in my day-to-day life? Do I actually understand what He's thinking about in regard to His children and how He wants our lives to look as we seek to follow Him with our whole heart? And when you look at a portion of Scripture like what we're looking at today, it speaks of some very specific aspects of God's plan that certainly the people of Judah could have applied to their day-to-day lives, but there's principles here that we would do well also to apply to our day-to-day walk with the Lord. And one of the things that comes up in this portion of Scripture as an idea or a concept or something that the Lord reveals as we think about how He plans things out, and this is kind of like a baseline premise here, but it's the idea that the Lord looks out for His people. So when we're thinking about the plans of God, One of the things that should be in our minds, particularly as we look at how Scripture unfolds and how the Lord works in the lives of individual people, it's specifically revealing to us that He's looking out for His people. That He's just not casting us out, but He's looking looking out for us. Let me reread the first few verses of this section. Let me pick up again at verse 10 and uh, reread this, because it says this, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, so notice some of the specific language that's used here. He says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pause there for just a second. I had a very interesting experience at the store the other day. I was... uh, in line, I was just buying a, a few food items, actually some things that I wanted to keep here at church. And um, while I was in line, uh, there were some other people in line ahead of me. And so I was just standing there, and I had the stuff in my hand, because I never think to actually grab one of those hand carts until, I actually, until it's too late, and I've already committed to an armful of things. But I'm standing there, and uh, while I'm standing there, a little girl walked up to me. And I don't know exactly how old she was, but if I had to guess, I would say she was less than two. And uh, she walked up to me, and she stood in front of me, and just kind of looked up at me for a second. And I was like, hello. And I'm just standing, and she, you know how kids, like, they don't really think about, like, personal space or, like, the awkwardness of lengthy eye contact or anything, but she just kept looking. And I was like, okay, hi, hi, child, how are you? Where did you come from? And in her hand, she had something. And I'm looking to see what she had in her hand. 
And uh, it was a, like a, a bag of plastic cups. I'm like, all right, she's got a bag of plastic cups. And she was looking at me, and then she's like, I guess she got bored with me, and then she just dropped them where I was standing there. I was like, okay, all right, we got some plastic cups here we have to navigate. And then I watched her walk over to the candy racks. And as she's standing at the candy racks, she's looking at everything that's there, but most of it's out of her reach. But then there's this bag of, of like Sour Patch Kids or something like that, and uh, she takes that off the shelf, and she's got that in her hand. Then she walks over to a side uh, aisle, and she's looking at the stuff there. And everything that she gets, she's only fascinated with for a moment, and then she gets bored with it, and she just drops it. And I'm looking at this, and I'm seeing this trail emerge in the store, and I'm like, where are her parents? That's what I started, I'm like, where's, who's watching this child? And I was, and you know, I've got stuff in my hand, so I'm like, I can't like, it's not my job to now like follow this child and like pick up everything that, you know, little kids obviously in their curiosity are going to be picking up, you know, she wasn't trying to do anything bad, but she did something then that made me nervous. As I'm getting close to the register, I'm, I'm still watching her because I don't have this feeling that any other adult is watching this little child. She started going toward the front door. And the front door, you know, there's only a sidewalk, just a normal width sidewalk, and then the parking lot. And I'm like, okay, you know, like, yeah, I, I don't feel the need to go around the store and pick up everything that got dropped, but obviously I'm not letting this child go out the door. I'm not letting this child, I don't know whose child this is, but this little kid is not walking out into uh, the, the parking lot. And so I just prepared myself to be kind of defense to make sure that she didn't go out. And, uh, and as I'm doing that, then an adult emerged and scooped her up and uh, took her somewhere else. Left all the stuff around. Everything was still left around, but, uh, but somebody finally came to get her. And when I looked at that, I thought, all right, it's very easy, and I understand this because my wife and I, had, I think we have four. We didn't really supervise them very much, but we ended up with four somehow. Uh, four stuck. Um, that's a bad joke. Um, you're not obligated to laugh at the bad ones or even the good ones, but but the, the point being, I know how easy it can be, particularly if you have multiple kids, to lose sight of one, two, three, or four, right? That can be very easy to have happen. That happens, they get away really quickly. But I mention that because think about our Lord. Think about how many people are on the earth at any given time. I think right now estimates have us close to 7 billion, right? Am I close? It's been a while since I've done a head count, right? And he keeps track of everybody. He doesn't lose sight of you or me or anyone. At the same time, he sees all people. He watches us, and particularly he's looking out for his people, and Scripture brings that up in multiple ways. Now, when you look at the people of Judah, and we've been looking at the Lord's interaction with them, uh, it, it hasn't necessarily been super uh, light or fluffy or always seeming, you know, like, it, like it's very... Um, uh, soft language that the Lord's using. In fact, many, much of the language that he uses throughout the course of this book is very direct and confrontational. But it's clear that the Lord cared about the people of Judah to be mindful of what was going on in their day-to-day -day lives. And it's true that the people of Judah, likewise, in the midst of that kind of experience, were also very rebellious against the Lord who was seeking to watch over them extremely rebellious against him. They embraced, and we've seen this in previous weeks, they embraced idolatry, and uh, they embraced all sorts of pagan practices. They were bringing that into their, into their nation. They were modeling that for their children. And so as we've seen in the previous chapters, the Lord was now disciplining them by allowing them to be taken as captives by a neighboring nation, by the nation of Babylon. And through Jeremiah... That generation of people that was now being brought into Babylon, they were told to settle down there, to get used to it, basically, to do things like build houses, to plant gardens, to have children, to give their children in marriage, because it was going to be a full 70 years before the people of Judah would be returning back to their land. Be a full 70 years before they'd be allowed to return back. Yet the Lord was going to look out for them 
throughout the course of this entire process. And when you look at this portion of Scripture that we just looked at a moment ago, in this Scripture, the Lord makes it abundantly clear to them that when their time of captivity was over, they were going to be brought back to their homeland. And He also makes it clear to them that His plans for their future and for their hope would not be thwarted. Again, verse 11 is the verse that most people know. If they can list any verse from the book of Jeremiah, it's usually Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. But again, I'll reread it because it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So the Lord's telling the people of Judah that though they had a bad habit of running from Him, that there would come a day when the people of Judah would be known for seeking the Lord with their whole heart, as it says in the verses that come from that, Um, that there would be a day when their fortunes would be restored, that there would be a day when they would be restored back to to their land. And now I recognize when we look at this portion of Scripture that this is a portion of Scripture that was initially given to the people of Judah, and it's making reference to something specific that the Lord was going to do in their situation. But the principles that are illustrated here are things that apply to everyone who trusts in the Lord. The Lord actively looks after the well-being of His children. Look at what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. It says this, "...humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him." Because why? Because He cares for you. That's the nature of our God. He actively cares for His children. He invites us to give our worries and our concerns and the things that we wrestle with to Him. He invites us to respond to Him with humility, recognizing who He is and how He operates in our lives. And one of the biggest differences between those who know the Lord and those who don't is the presence of His genuine hope in our daily lives. We can be certain that in the midst of every season of adversity or every season of anxiety or every season of of exile, as you see the people of Judah going through at this particular time, that Jesus is present with us. Jesus is the source of our hope. Our hope is not anchored in ideal earthly circumstances. Our true hope is in Jesus Christ, who assures us multiple times in multiple ways that He will never leave us. In fact, His plan is to eventually glorify us with Him. And time and time again, the Word of God illustrates that the Lord looks out for and sincerely cares for His people. And He was making that abundantly clear to the people of Judah through Jeremiah and through Jeremiah's preaching, and He makes that clear to us as well. And as we continue to think about how the Lord's plan unfolds, this portion of Scripture illustrates for us another principle that very much fits with God's plan, but sometimes it's not something that we initially think of when we ask ourselves the question, what's God's plan for my life? Well, another aspect of God's plan for us is that we would discern which voices the Lord desires us to listen to. Discernment is part of God's plan for us. It's part of His will for you and for me that we would discern which voices uh, He actually desires that we listen to. Look at what it says in verse 15. This is very interesting. It says, "...because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold... I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, But you would not listen, declares the Lord. Let's pause there. So as we've been looking through the book of Jeremiah over the the past few months, it's become clear that the people of Judah, they absolutely hated Jeremiah's preaching. They hated his preaching. They despised what he said. They did not appreciate the messages from the Lord that, that Jeremiah was delivering to this group of people. So Jeremiah was treated like a nuisance. 
He was treated like an irritant. And when he would speak, because he was considered a nuisance or an irritant, he was likewise ignored. But Jeremiah wasn't the only person that was speaking to the people of Judah. There were other prophets who were speaking to the people of Judah that they were also ignoring. And on top of that, there were false prophets in and among the people of Judah, people that Satan had raised up in their midst, who preached a message that was much more palatable and much more desirable to the people of Judah. And some of these false prophets apparently went with the people of Judah into captivity in Babylon. And even though the Lord was making it abundantly clear through Jeremiah that the captivity was going to last 70 years, he explicitly said it, 70 years, seven decades. He's telling them, get settled there, build houses, let your kids get married, have, you know, plant a garden, you're going to be there a while. You know, he's basically saying to many of the people, you're going to spend the rest of your lives there. You are not coming back to Judah. Your children and grandchildren will be the ones that come back to Judah, but not you. So settle in. You're going to be there a while. Seven decades. But in the midst of that message being communicated, you have the false prophets who are telling the people of Judah that they would be back from Babylon in no time at all. In fact, many of them were saying, you'll be back within two years be back within two years. Even though Jeremiah was clearly saying, as the Lord gave him the words to speak, you're going to be there 70 years. These false prophets were saying, no, it's only, it's two years. Two years and you're right back in the land. Meanwhile, you have the Lord saying through Jeremiah yet again, that, uh, that those who didn't go into exile in Babylon, those who remained in Jerusalem, they were going to be experiencing a fate that was even worse than exile in a foreign land. He says here that those people that remained in Jerusalem, they were going to be facing sword and famine and pestilence, and that the people of the world would look at them and shake their heads in horror and shake their heads in disgust, wondering, why has this group of people been so cursed? And again, while this message was absolutely true and was indeed what happened, this was obviously not a very pleasant thing to hear. You know, the empty promises of the false prophets were highly preferred over the truths from God that Jeremiah was revealing to the people of Judah. And when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, one of the things that it makes me think about, and you probably think about this too, in relation to the time and era that we live in right now, is are there false prophets that we're contending with right now? Is this something that we wrestle with right now in our day-to-day context? And the truth is, absolutely. There are false prophets that Satan delights to raise up in every generation, right? In every generation, Satan raises up people who preach a false gospel. And he does this in just this vindictive effort to keep the mass of humanity in perpetual spiritual blindness, But if that's taking place, and and in fact that is taking place, and Scripture reminds us that that's a continual issue that the church needs to be aware of, how can we recognize a false prophet? How can you actually recognize that somebody is preaching falsehood, or that somebody's a false prophet that's more doing the bidding of Satan than actually listening to the counsel of the Lord? Let me suggest four ways that you could recognize a false prophet. One of the biggest telltale signs that you could recognize that somebody is is, uh, proclaiming falsehood is that the message that they preach depends more on human effort than anything else, meaning they minimize the saving work of Jesus Christ that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, and they overemphasize human effort as if salvation is something that we have to earn or merit. A second thing that I think we need to be mindful of when it comes to recognizing false prophets, and by the way, I, 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 bring, I had an awkward experience the other day. Many of you know that one of my hobbies is to write books, and so I, it's like a daily habit. Once you write a book and it's up on Amazon, you check. I literally check every day how well it's doing, right? And, um, and, and so it's like, all right, how's it doing? And so I look at the ranking and stuff like that. I'm like, hey, is Amazon going to plug this for me or is it going to fall back in its system? And the other day I happened to look 
and you ever buy a book on Amazon and it says, hey, customers who bought this book also bought this book. And they try and upsell you a little bit. And they're like, hey, you know, maybe you should buy this one too. And I was like, oh, who are they upselling my book with? And it was somebody, and I won't, I won't use the person's name, but it was somebody that I consider a modern-day false prophet. And I was like, no, don't partner the book with that one. Not that one. I was, looking, I was like, no, not that one. Come on. And like, there, you have no control over it. It's Amazon's algorithm. It's like, hey, if you like this one that's preaching the truth of the gospel, maybe you'll want to balance it out with something that preaches a false gospel. And then at the end of the day, you could be confused and know nothing. And I was like, Amazon, please delete that. But like, you have no, you have no options there. In our day and age, there are people that preach a false gospel. And it was somebody that preaches one of those things where it's like you can earn the favor of God by what you do instead of recognizing, no, you couldn't earn it. Jesus came to this earth and he gave it to us as a gift through the work that he accomplished. Something else that you can use as you're trying to recognize, like a modern-day false prophet, is this. They tend to emphasize earthly ideals and encourage people to strive for, for temporary riches. That usually tends to be a pattern, right? Earthly ideals and temporary riches tend to be their primary motivation. A third thing that I think helps us recognize that someone's a false prophet is that they promise ultimate peace, ultimate comfort, and ultimate contentment through something other than Jesus. If someone promises you ultimate peace and ultimate comfort and ultimate contentment, and they're, they're telling you that you can find that in something other than Christ, that would be the teaching of a false prophet. And a fourth thing that a lot of times can be very difficult to discern, because false prophets don't tend to let too many people close. They don't tend to let you observe their lives up close. But their lack of character becomes evident when they're looked at closely. So they tend to make sure that they keep people at a distance. They don't want you to know too much about what's going on in their day-to-day life. They're more interested in their public persona than removing that veil and letting people see what life is actually like. Now, if that's the case, you know, if we're trying to recognize that sort of thing, that false teaching taking place in our era, just as the Lord was trying to use Jeremiah to help the people of that era to discern what was true and what was false, how can we, how can we reduce the influence of false teachers or false teaching in our lives. A few suggestions I have related to that. First, pray that the Lord gives us discernment along the lines of this verse from Psalm 25. In Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5, it says this, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. As the psalmist is saying, lead me in your truth and teach me. This is a psalm that's offered up as a prayer. And I believe that the Lord wants us to seek discernment from him, that we would pray and ask the Lord to give us discernment. I think a second thing that we can do is to hold uh, hold every philosophy up to the light of the gospel as it's communicated in scripture. Just compare it side by side. What does the gospel say? And what does this philosophy try and tell me? Hold them side by side. And I think a third thing that's helpful for us when we're trying to be discerning people who reduce the influence of false prophecies or or false teaching in our day-to-day life is to seek counsel from Christians that you have the opportunity to observe their lifestyle up close. People that you know are the real deal. People that don't just have like a, you know, a marketing agent or, or you know, just some slick persona that they try and convey but people that you have seen day in and day out go through trials and seasons of life, and yet their faith in the Lord remains strong and and continues to grow. And you can see that they're people of integrity who don't just tell you something and then go in a different direction that's the opposite of what they've communicated. Learn and seek counsel from Christians whose whose lifestyle you've had the opportunity to seek or opportunity to see up close. And here, when you look at this portion of Scripture as the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, He's teaching the people to discern which voices He desires them to listen to. That's part of God's plan for you and for me and for the people of Judah. There's one other principle that this portion of Scripture brings out that I want to finish up with today, and that's this. 
be careful not to blame God for your decisions. Now, why would I bring that up? Well, again, it's brought up here in this portion of Scripture. And it's something that's very easy for us to do. Do you ever just kind of look at day-to-day life and kind of decide, this is what I want, and then find yourself failing to ask, Lord, is this what you want? And here in this portion of Scripture, it says this, starting in verse 20. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles, whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Coliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. By the way, let me pause there for a second. I'm going to pick up in a second at verse 22. But if you ever wanted to be able to test whether or not Jeremiah's prophecies were accurate, all this group of people had to do is to see, is what he's saying here actually taking place? Does this stuff actually happen? Are we here for more than two years? Are we here for for 70 years? Does this stuff happen to these men, Ahab and, and Zedekiah? And you would think as this stuff started to happen that the people would say, you know, we ought to listen to Jeremiah's preaching. But it was actually the generations, mainly afterward, who started listening. But it says in verse 22, Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah and Babylon. So a way that they would curse somebody, a way they would insult somebody, would be to say this. Eventually he's saying, this will be a curse that you use. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Not a fascinating statement. It's like, may your fate be like Ahab and Zedekiah, whom the king roasted in the fire. And Jeremiah is saying this at the time that people are still listening to these people. So Ahab and Zedekiah are still alive at the time he's saying this. Again, not really making friends, is he, Jeremiah? You know, he's not really like warming himself up to very many people at this point. The people that they wanted to listen to, he's saying, oh, you know what's going to happen to them? First of all, they're telling you lies, and they're going to get cooked. They're going to get roasted in the fire as a form of punishment. Verse 23 says, because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel. And again, when we talk about the idea of observing someone's lifestyle up close, they were listening, listening to false prophets who had what? He says, they have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, And they have spoken in my name lying words, which I did not command them. Then the Lord reminds them all that he sees. He says, I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. It's a fascinating portion of Scripture. And here in the midst of this, one of the principles we could take from this is this idea, don't blame God for your decisions. Now, a few years ago, I had an experience where a young man came up to me, and this is enough years ago now. Uh, but he came up to me and he said, uh, Pastor John, I have a question for you. He was engaged to be married, and he said, I, I'm really struggling with whether or not I should, go, I, I should go through with this wedding or whether or not I should call off the engagement. And I said, well, tell me what's going on. And he said, all right, here's my struggle. And I, I'm engaged to someone who does not share my faith in Christ. And uh, lately, one of the big issues that we have is that my fiancé, in very unhealthy ways, is trying to seek the attention of other men. And I said, okay, that sounds very awkward. And he gave me a lot of details related to it. And what I said to him, I I said, all right, I'm just going to tell you what Scripture says related to this. If she doesn't share your faith in Christ, that's obviously the biggest red flag there. But I also said, in the years of working with couples that I've experienced, something like this doesn't end well. I said, this doesn't end well. And I said, you're at a spot right now where you're making life decisions. And if she does not trust in Jesus, that right there is reason enough for you guys not to marry. But then these other issues, I believe, are the fruit of her not trusting in Jesus. And so my counsel to you, my advice as we looked at what Scripture had to say about this, would be to, to go with his, his, his uh, idea to break the, the engagement off before they got married. I said, I think that that's your best bet. I really don't think that you should be getting married in a context like this. And he said, okay. And a few days later, his dad uh, in person said, hey, I want to talk to you. And I was like, uh-oh. 
was like, uh, I, and I could tell, it was like, I want to talk to you, but not in a way like, I am so happy with you right now. It's like, I want to talk to you and tell you all the reasons why I'm mad at you right now. And I'm like, oh, great. And he said, I heard the counsel that you gave my son. And I said, yes. And um, whatever happened, by the way, to like confidentiality and counseling, like, why am I the only one that has to keep it confidential? You know, like, you've got to keep it confidential too, right? But, um, but he said, I heard the counsel that you gave my son. And I was like, okay. And uh, he said, I, he, this is a literal quote. This is what he said. I don't believe it's biblical. And I'm like, are you just trying to say that phrase because I'm a pastor and like if we declare something biblical, it is, or if it isn't, like what, what does that mean? I don't believe it's biblical. It's like, but if we're looking at what the Bible says and actually trying to do what the Bible says, wouldn't that be biblical? Uh, but I didn't say that. That's what I thought. And he said, he said, um, he said no, I, I think it's God's will that they get married. And I, I was like, okay. I said, well, I mean, that you're entitled to your opinion. Uh, and the truth is, he, he, he liked the girl a lot and uh, really wanted her to be his daughter-in-law. And I said, listen, this is not, it's not my decision. Your son asked me for counsel. He wanted to know what Scripture said about things like this. So I gave him the counsel that Scripture gives and explained you know, why that's stuff that's important, even just from anecdotal experience that I've observed. And he said, well, I don't, I don't believe that's biblical counsel. And I said, okay, that's your decision. He's got to pray about what he's going to do with his life. So he ended up getting married uh, to this girl not long after that, and literally within a few months, they were divorced. And I looked at that, and I thought, okay, it was sad, but it was very, very predictable. It was unfortunate, but it wasn't something that you couldn't see coming. It's like, of course you could see that coming. Obviously, that was on its way. When we go our own way, and instead of of, uh, you know, listening to the counsel of God, but basically decide to do whatever we want anyway, well, then guess what happens? There are consequences to that. And the interesting thing is, how often do we find ourselves in a moment where we've done whatever we wanted to do, instead of what the Lord's revealed to us in Scripture, and then we're not happy with the outcome, and then what happens? We get mad at God as if it's His fault. And we blame Him for our bad decisions. We're like, God, why would you let this happen to me? And the Lord, I imagine, looks at us and says, interesting that you would say, why would I let that happen to you? That sounds to me like something that was your decision. You made that decision. Even though I told you to go in a different direction. A dangerous practice that can be somewhat common for believers to engage in is for us at times, I have done this, you have done this, every one of us is in the same boat with this, but where we elevate our feelings or our preferences or our desires over the clear and direct counsel of God's Word. We justify our decisions by saying certain things like, you know, I I feel like this is what God is leading me to do, without ever saying, well, what does Scripture actually say about this? And I think, sadly, our justifications can at times uh, display a great degree of similarity with some of the issues that were present in this portion of Jeremiah's book, because through Jeremiah, you have the Lord saying here in regard to these false teachings and false prophecies that they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. And basically what was happening, you have this group of false teachers who were willing to invoke the name of God to justify their desire to follow their own inclinations. And as a result, they were leading themselves further and further away from the Lord. They were leading the other people further and further away from the Lord. But God's plan for us is so much higher than the ideas or the pursuits that we're able to craft up with our own minds, or or just conjure up with our own minds. I like what it says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. The Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And the Lord reveals to us that His ways are higher, so we need to trust Him. He can see the perspective of things that we struggle to see. And just like the people of Judah, we were once exiles living outside of the will of God. We were crafting our own will, we were crafting our own plans, and those plans were taking us in a direction that was completely absent 
of his leading. And so the Lord looked at us, and he would have been fully justified in saying, you know what? That's your decision. Reap the consequences. But instead of doing that, our gracious Lord interjected himself into the lives that we were leading, that were busy ignoring him. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to this earth to give liberty to every single person who was living like an exile from God's kingdom. He came to give us liberty as we would simply trust in Him. In Romans 6, verses 22 and 23, it says, But now that you have been set free from sin, so we look at this liberty that Christ has given us, setting us free from sin, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's God's desire for us. That's God's plan for us, that we would embrace this aspect of His plan. So as we finish up this morning, I just want to ask again, do we understand God's plan for us? You know, when you look at a portion of Scripture like this from Jeremiah 29, He reveals that His plan truly is to give His people hope, and a future. And that hope and that future is ultimately found in His Son, Jesus Christ. We find contentment through Christ. We find peace and forgiveness through Christ. We find security and power through Jesus Christ. And it's the plan of our sovereign Creator to make us a new creation through Jesus Christ. If we've been resisting God's plan, That's something that's the pattern that we've embraced up to this point. I want to encourage us not to resist Him any longer. Welcome Christ's presence. Welcome Christ's divine work to be accomplished within you. That's the desire of God for your life and for my life. That's the plan He wants to accomplish for us. And this morning, you can see here in front of us here, we have communion set up. And as Christ was in the midst of accomplishing this plan, as He was culminating His earthly ministry, as He was preparing to be crucified to atone for our sin, as He was looking forward to resurrection and ascension back to heaven, and then returning again someday, He gave us communion and He said to His followers, He told them, listen, I want you to look at the bread and I want you to think about what I accomplished in in bodily form on your behalf as I suffered for your sin. I want you to look at the juice, and I want you to look at it, and I want you to think about the fact that my blood was shed to usher in the new covenant. By the way, when we get to chapter 31, that's the part of, the, of Jeremiah that speaks about the new covenant that Christ ushers in. But Jesus wanted us to be thinking about these things, and He wanted us to be meditating on the fact that His plan for us is that we be a new creation in Him. But for that to happen, He had to atone for our sin. And just like the people of Judah were forgetful, we're forgetful too. And it can be very easy for me to stop thinking about what Jesus has accomplished on my behalf and to start overthinking that I need to accomplish things on my behalf that ultimately only He can accomplish. And so as we partake of communion this morning, we want to be focused on who Jesus is, what He has done for us, and start off this week with Christ fresh on our minds, so that we who by nature are forgetful people will be thinking of Jesus and who He is to us and what His plan ultimately is for us, for our sanctification, for our salvation, for our future with Him. Before we partake of communion together, our pattern is we take a moment to just pause silently. We use that time to just reflect on the things that the Lord brings to our mind and brings to our heart as we confess any sin that may be present in our heart or in our lives to the Lord, asking Him for the strength to repent of that sin, as we just confess to Him any areas where we might be um, having conflict or difficulty with our brothers and sisters in Christ, these are things that we pause before the Lord and confess to Him and seek His cleansing as we partake of communion that reminds us of Christ's atoning of our sins. So let's pause for a moment of silent confession before the Lord.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that we can come before your throne and recognize that we are welcomed into your presence because of the work that you've accomplished on our behalf. Lord, we recognize that by nature we are sinners, and you would have been perfectly justified to just abandon us in the midst of our sin because it was due to our own rebellion against you, and we deserved any condemnation that came our way. But because your compassion is perfect and your mercy is perfect, you looked at us and you chose in love to intervene. You came to this earth, Jesus. You lived the perfect life that we, by nature, do not have the capacity to live. So you lived it for us. You died on the cross to suffer and bleed and, and, and die for our sin. You who had no sin took our sin upon yourself. You took the wrath of the Father upon yourself at the cross. And you did so so that ultimately we could be cleansed and forgiven of the sin that, that we would have had to stand before your throne guilty of if you had not paid for it. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that death did not defeat you. You defeated death. You rose from the grave on the third day, appeared to your followers for a period of 40 days, and reminded them that sin and Satan and death are now defeated. So we don't need to give sin, Satan, or death victory in our lives once we trust in you. You cleanse us of our sin. You indwell us. You give us your strength. You give us hope and a future. And you remind us that these are things that are all secured by you. So Lord, as we partake of the bread and the juice, we do so as forgetful people that are appreciative of this reminder. Thank you, Lord, for your body and what you endured on our behalf. Thank you for being willing to shed blood on our behalf. And thank you for the hope and the future that we have through trusting in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.